Now it's nice to have some of our older members back in church with us this morning. They missed the two expositions that were particularly appropriate for those of older years in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 through 8, but I believe several of our older members heard those expositions on tape. We're delighted to have them back with us. I must tell you, I must just take a moment to tell you I was visiting an older lady in the congregation and uh, pre- when I was preaching on old age, and uh, this particular person had a telephone call while I was sitting there in her living room. And she turned to me after a moment and she said, you won't believe this, but, and she's a lady in her 80s. She said, here's a young woman on the other end of the line and she's inviting me to a dancing class. So I heard her say to the young lady, well, I don't think this would be quite appropriate for me. And the response apparently was, oh, but I think it would do you a great deal of good. (laughs) So she turned to me and said, well, do you think I should go with my cane or with my crutches? (laughs) Now, will you turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and we're going to read the final verses of this great chapter as we begin to look at them this Sunday, and we'll take one or two more Sundays, I believe, to finish the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, and from verse 9 to verse 14. You'll find Ecclesiastes just after the book of Proverbs. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. And verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads, their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. May God indeed himself bless this reading of his word to us all. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we are coming in these Sunday mornings to the final section of what has been one of the most fascinating and in many ways one of the most challenging books, I believe, of the Old Testament scriptures. A book that has given us a thorough analysis of all of human life from one end, it seems, to the other, from birth to death, as all of nature and history have been before us, and it seems practically all of human experience as well. It's one of the most realistic books 
of the whole of the Bible. And you remember that the verdict with which Ecclesiastes began in chapter 1, verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, everything under the sun is meaningless, is also the verdict with which the book has seemed to end in verse 8 of our chapter, chapter 12. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. It's as though you go out and you try, as he said, to catch the wind in your fists, and you can't do it. Well, as we come to the final section of the book this morning, having looked at the past and all that it has taught us, and the present and all that we are involved in, and the future and the fact that we don't know anything about it and what will happen to us, we have to ask the question, is that all that Ecclesiastes has had to share with us? The futility and emptiness of life lived under the sun without any reference to God? And the answer, of course, is no. Ecclesiastes is not the black sheep of the Bible as some people have made out a puzzling book that apparently tells us that life isn't worth living at all and has practically no reference to God and his goodness and providence and sovereignty in it. Where is God in all of Ecclesiastes' thinking? And the answer, as we've already seen, is not that he's not there, but that so far, He's been there only in the shadows. Do you remember on these many Sunday mornings that we've shared together in this book that God has been there, but always in the background? And very seldom has he come out and stood in the foreground, as it were, before us. But now I want you to notice there is a change as the book concludes. And what has previously been hinted at, or mentioned in a very tantalizing way to us, is now openly explained and expounded. In verse 1 of chapter 12 and through verses 9 through 14, the last five verses of Ecclesiastes' message. Beloved, how does this book end? It ends by pointing upward to God. And at last this man is drawing the curtain and the veil fully back from his writings and showing us where all that he's taught us is finally leading us, not into despair and darkness and pessimism, but he shows us where the quest for the real meaning of life must not only begin, but continue and finally end. Not under the sun at all, but by having regard to the God who reigns and lives above the sun. God, the creator, the shepherd, and the judge. Now, what we're going to do this morning is by way of an overview, 
of this concluding passage of Ecclesiastes. There's too much there for me to deal with in a single exposition and a sermon, and what I want you to see this morning is the three vital ways in which the reality of God should touch our lives. We who have been learning the solemn lessons of life all through the amazing chapters of this book. There is a creator to remember, says Ecclesiastes. There is a shepherd to trust. There is a judge before whom we are to fear. And I want you to notice that if, my dear friends, the study of this book all through these many months has not brought you to this point, then you've missed the message of Ecclesiastes. And all that he has been saying on every subject that he has said it has been completely lost on you. There is a creator to remember. There is a shepherd to trust. There is a God who is a judge to be feared. And that's where everything else points to this morning. Now, first of all, I want you to come with me on this journey that he takes us upon in these verses to the fact that there is a creator to remember. And I direct your attention to verse 1. We've already looked at it in a different context, the context of youth and old age and how powerful an exhortation it was to remember God while we have the strength and the vitality of the younger years that we will never have to the same extent again. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come when you will begin to say, I no longer want to live anymore. Remember him. Verse 6. Now, do you see with me in the overall context of this concluding chapter what the writer, the preacher, Ecclesiastes is really doing? You see, the path of this concluding chapter is set, pointing no longer outward to the affairs of this life, the injustice on the one hand, the good not being rewarded on the other, the fact that death comes to us all, the emptiness of all human work and wisdom and pleasure. It's not an outward emphasis. It's an upward emphasis. Remember him. Upwards to God. And the path of this concluding chapter is directly here. That the goal, beloved, that you and I were originally made for in this world and in this life is God. And all the tantalizing glimpses that he's given to us of God in the shadows now are replaced by the picture of God who is no longer in the background, as I said a moment ago, but is standing in all his glory in the very foreground 
of Ecclesiastes' thinking and of his counsel. The picture that we saw of the eternal, who has placed eternity in man's heart. The God who has made man upright, as we learned in chapter 7, verse 29, but before whom we have become very complicated indeed. The God who is the source of all life, as we saw in chapter 11, creating life in the womb of the pregnant mother. This God now stands before us as the almighty creator who is to be relied upon all our days. Now it's one of the few popular verses in the book of Ecclesiastes. And why is it here in this chapter? Well, let me remind you again that it's not here to recall for us the fact of God's existence. Ecclesiastes is not saying to us, I want you to give intellectual recognition to the fact that there is a God in spite of all life's mystery. A God who reigns in majesty. It's not there for our intellectual contemplation. It's there as a divine exhortation to shape and conduct and determine the whole course of our lives for a practical purpose that we should realize in the midst of all life's mysteries and enigmas there is a God who has authority over us and to whom we are to respond. Now, do you see that? I want you to grasp it. It's so vital this morning. The whole book has dealt with the why of life being as it is. But this verse answers the fundamental question, how? Can I relate to God in the midst of life's mystery and enigmas? And the answer is, he wants me to know that I was made by God and for God, and that this is the fundamental truth of being able to handle the mysteries of life. Nothing in life, you see, will ever be right in my life until... I am built on this foundation. But my life belongs to God. That it will only achieve significance when it is lived for God. And any other purpose that I substitute in that place will make my life completely out of joint. And that's what Ecclesiastes means. Now, beloved, let me ask you this morning, as you've traveled these many weeks and months with me in this journey, have you fully realized that now is the time to live your life for God in this way? 
as you've come through these amazing passages and experiences, as you've been in the courts of kings, as you've been in the temple and bowed in worship, as you've been in the dark back streets, in the rooms of the money changers, as you've been out in God's world of nature, in the fields and the forests, and you've heard the birds sing, and you've seen the sunrise, and you've felt the winds blow. Have you realized through all of these things that he's taken us, that the goal that God has destined us for is himself? Have you been driven into his presence by life's mysteries and perplexities to say, how I must relate to life is to remember my creator? And let me remind you again, and you young people who are here in this service, The biblical word in Hebrew to remember does not mean to give intellectual recognition to something or someone. It means positively taking action on behalf of that person. Just as when God remembered Hannah after she prayed that marvelous prayer that God would bless her in her barrenness and give her a child. God remembered Hannah and he visited her with that child. He did something for her. And to remember God as my creator, means just that. It means taking actions for him, actually being busy about his work in the world. As we saw in chapter 11, living in that judicious and courageous way, casting our bread upon all waters, sowing our seed wherever it may fall, and leaving the issue with God and living in that solid, God-centered way that leads to true enjoyment, as we saw in chapter 11. And you know, the only way in which we can do it is when we come to know the God who is the Creator revealed in all the rest of Scripture, especially in the New Testament, when I come to realize that in myself I am a sinner, though made in the image of God, and I need to be new created in Christ Jesus to know the continuing contemporary power of the God who not only created me at one point in time, but longs to recreate me in the image of Christ and by his contemporary power make me a new creation. In Christ Jesus. My friend, do you know the privilege of working for God in this life? Because, listen, the time for exercising that privilege will have gone oh so quickly, forever gone. And now is the time, because the night is coming when no man can work for him anymore. Now, the second thing I want you to notice from our passage is that there is a shepherd to trust in verse 11. Cast your eye down to that 
closing paragraph of the book of Ecclesiastes. And here is the second of the three pointers Godward. The words of the wise, we read, are like goads, the collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Now, who is the one shepherd? Well, there can be no question whatever that in the mind of the preacher is Jehovah the Lord. The same one who has been called creator at the beginning of the chapter is now brought before us under the name and designation of shepherd. And it's a very welcome title and compliment to the earlier name of creator, isn't it? Because it tells us that the God who is afar off in the sense as the glorious, majestic creator of all of us is also and equally the God who is at hand as the loving and tender shepherd of his people who knows and can be known who speaks through the collected sayings of the wise men, yet with a voice of finality. Now look at him for a moment with me, will you? His identity. He is without any question the Lord. Because, you see, the way in which he's described is the one who is the inspirer of the collected sayings of the wise. What are the collected sayings of the wise? They are the scriptures. And particularly, the author Ecclesiastes is referring to the origin of his own writings. They have come from the one shepherd, like the other writings collected into the body, the corpus of the Holy Scriptures. And God, the shepherd, has given these writings to be as goads to lead his sheep into the pasturages that he wants to feed and nourish them in. And you see, his identity is clear. It is Jehovah who cares for his people as he did in other Old Testament passages where he's spoken of as the shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 80, verses 1 and 2. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. The shepherd of Israel. Or in that beautiful picture that Isaiah paints in Isaiah 40, where the shepherd goes forth with his arm of strength against his enemies, and the same shepherd with that loving arm gathers the lambs to his bosom and gently leads those that are with young. Do you see what Ecclesiastes is saying to us? The same shepherd who looked after David and Jacob in the book of Genesis and Moses and God's people in the time of Isaiah is the one who stands before us at the end of this book 
Now why is he called the shepherd here? Because he has given us his word, the collected sayings of the wise. Do you notice they are given to the wise men? They are from God, who would use them like a shepherd's staff or goad to draw out the sheep after him. Now let me ask you, as you've been with me through the book of Ecclesiastes, have the words of this wise man been like goads to you? Have they spurred your will to seek after God? Have they stimulated your mind to think God's thoughts after him? Have they awakened and stirred your conscience to follow after the shepherd? You see, the whole purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is summed up in that designation of God as the shepherd that we should be saved from ever building our lives on our own will and wisdom which will burst like a bubble under our weight but rather we should be led into the pasturages and into the paths but the wise shepherd would lead us by his word. So let me ask you, have you been drawn to that great shepherd of the sheep? Do you know this heavenly wisdom for living here in this world? Have you looked at life with new eyes on these Sunday mornings and seen the way through it as you've never seen it before? Have you learned from the scriptures not to go beyond them ever? Because you notice there is a warning in that shepherd's crook and goad and staff of anything in addition to them. And that's where Ecclesiastes would leave us, a shepherd in whom we are to trust. Now, thirdly, I want you to notice that there is a judge whom we are to fear in verses 13 and 14. Fear God, he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, this is the third pointer that is Godward at the end of the message of Ecclesiastes the third thing that takes our thoughts and puts them in the direction that this whole book has been intended to take us. There is not only a creator to remember and a shepherd to trust, but also a God to fear, a judge to fear. Now there's a difference here, and I wonder if you noticed it when we read the passage together. God stands before us indeed as creator and shepherd, but you may choose to ignore him. You may say, I don't want anything to do with the God who made me. I will live my life my own way. Thank you very much. Or you may say, I am not interested in the pasturages 
but the shepherd has provided to nourish and feed me and the paths that he has planned out in which I should walk, I will go in my own way and find my own nourishment. In other words, you can ignore him as creator and as shepherd. But I want you to notice the difference is you cannot ignore him as your judge. Beloved, this morning, this is not a decision that you can make. This is a destiny to which he has appointed you. Will you, nil you? You are on your way there. The greater size, the last day, the day of judgment is coming irrevocably, whether you want it or will it or not. It is appointed unto men, says the writer in the New Testament, once to die, and after that, the judgment. And this being so, the third solemn factor that he would face us with as he points us upward is there is a judge to fear with all our hearts because none of us will ever escape his judgment. Now, I want you to notice one or two things as I finish. All through the book of Ecclesiastes, there have been clear hints of God as judge, but always in the shadows, as we saw. In chapter 5, verses 4 through 7, we were reminded that when you go into church, into the temple, and make your solemn vow before God, we should fear God because He will judge those who make vows and then break them. And he will exercise his option to destroy the work of their hands. And in chapter 3, verse 15, and verse 17, in chapter 11, verse 9, and here in this verse of chapter 12, there is very clear teaching about the reality of a coming judgment until we stand where we do this morning, and he says to us, you personally will stand before God and give account of how you have lived out your life. Now, what we are to realize is this, that we are doing neither ourselves nor anyone else any favor if we try to cover over the stern aspect of God's character. In nature, Ecclesiastes has said, in history, in signs and wonders, in the words of this book, in the voice of my conscience, supremely in the revelation of God in Christ, man has been taught he is accountable to God, he is utterly without excuse. And in Acts 17, we read that God has appointed a day in the which he will judge all men by the man Christ Jesus. It is a certainty. But there is something else. How are you and how am I preparing for it? It was Shakespeare who said in one of his plays, Time that takes a survey of the world must have a stop. The clock ticks, the minutes run, 
the first moment after time is what? Eternity. Eternity. And the first moment of eternity is judgment. And how do you stand before God, the judge? Now he tells us how we should stand in verse 13. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Do you see it there? And literally, what he is saying to us is that you are here in this world to fit into God's plan. Usually, we make him fit into our plan, don't we? But if this is not our experience, says Ecclesiastes, nothing else will make sense of this life. Not only do we need God as creator and God as shepherd who leads us, but God as judge before whom we solemnly stand and give account of our lives. And the remembrance of that day we should often recall and say to ourselves, I am here in this world to fit into God's plan for me. And to fear God means just this, to be concerned about pleasing him more than I am concerned about anything else in this world. Now let me ask you, is that how you are living out your life today? Because so many people around us fear men and other people and the world's standards far more than they fear God as they chase after the wind and the tragedy is they so often find it and only it. Now as I finish, a creator to remember and a shepherd to trust and a judge to fear. This is where Ecclesiastes is taking us at the end of this book. And I want you to notice, you know, the theme of this book isn't vanity of vanities, is it? It's not meaningless. Meaningless, everything is meaningless. The theme of this book, he reminds us in a way that no one can possibly mistake or misunderstand, is a summons to know and trust and obey the living God as your creator and your shepherd and your judge. Do you know what the punchline of Ecclesiastes is? The punchline is, is God in the background of your life or in the foreground? Where does he figure in your plans, your decisions, your relationships, your work, your pleasure? Is he there not just in suitable company on a Sunday morning when we gather here? But is he there all the time? Is he? Because this is where you discover the real meaning of life. And nowhere else in the whole universe of God.
Are you there this morning where you should be? Or are you still following the options that Ecclesiastes has long since discarded? Which is it? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we're very thankful this morning for this passage that's here in the Word of God that is so heavenly in its content, so upward-looking in its message, and simple as this exposition may be, we recognize it's the most profound thing with which we could ever be addressed. Where does God figure in my daily life as creator and shepherd and judge before whom one day I must stand and give account. May we, by God's grace, know the biblical way to God and the biblical way of making him these three things in our lives for his glory's sake. Amen.